Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Women's History Month is an annual declared month that highlights the contributions of women to events in history and contemporary society. This month is still quite new. It didn't become a national celebration until 1981, when Congress declared the week beginning March 7, 1982, as Women's History Week. In 1987, it became Women's History Month. While the weeks of March are a great time to celebrate how amazing all women are, they are also a time to look back on feminism and women's history throughout the years. This month is all about recognizing the contributions great women have made to the United States. Each year there has been a theme designated by the National Women's History Alliance, which has become the hub for women's history organizations. The special theme for 2019 is Visionary Women, Champions of Peace and Nonviolence. This year, women are being honored who have led efforts to end war, violence, and injustice and pioneered the use of nonviolence to change society. Melissa McEwen is a professor of history at Transylvania University. She also teaches women's gender and sexuality studies. She is the author or co-author of several publications, Along with historian Thomas Appleton, who just happens to be our Kentucky Humanities Board Chair, she edited Kentucky Women, Their Lives and Times. Welcome to Women's History Month. And uh, Melissa, let me just begin uh, by saying thank you, first of all, for being uh, with us. Why is it important that we observe uh, um, a month uh, every year that we call Women's History Month? Thanks, Bill. Thanks for inviting me uh, to come talk about Women's History Month and women's history. I, uh, I think, you know, the question arises whether we still need a Women's History Month. Every year, someone will ask, there will be more than one person ask, haven't we kind of taken care of that? Aren't women in public life and uh, in the stories? But I think that Women's History Month is necessary. Um, Still, because there's so many stories about women that haven't been told. And as much as historians have done to try to restore women to the narrative of the past, there's still so many stories that haven't been told. And I think Women's History Month does that. Um, All of the events, the exhibits, the celebrations, those things... uh, allow us to to look at those stories and, you know, inspire us and give the participants and people who, who attend those exhibits confidence. Oftentimes you hear about um, uh, African-American uh, History um, Month, uh, which we also celebrate, that, that a lot of comment would be, why don't we celebrate it every day? And I would assume that you would think the same thing about uh, women's history, and maybe there should be a way that we can lift up the history of, uh, of women uh, a bit more than we do every day. Uh, would it be important to, uh, to cast even a brighter light on women uh, than we do today? 
I think I think that's very important. And asking the question about African American History Month is similar to asking this question about Women's History Month. I think if if we stood in a different place and looked, it kind of took a different perspective on the past. Um, maybe 180 degrees, we would tend to look at African-American history and women's history more constantly or more continuously. Um, And I recall years ago, it's been over 20 years ago, the great um, women's history pioneer Gerda Lerner said, you know, we need to ask this question, what were women doing while men were doing what the textbooks say are important hmm. um, and that we really need to ask the question in that way and not just not just kind of trust all the the big important textbooks or the big important histories that come out that are primarily about politics or diplomacy or fields that men have traditionally been in um, but if we ask that question you know what were women doing um, while men were doing the things that the textbooks say are important? And I think we could ask that question about a number of groups, typically marginalized groups, because that's a way then to restore people to history. I will ask this question and then probably circle around and um, we'll talk about it uh, a a few more minutes uh, down the road. But it just, um, is this moment in time is this place in our history in in where where we are living is this any more important um than than a generation ago uh, is what has happened in modern life in politics in, in history across uh, uh happenings across the world um uh, women who uh, have been um in situations that uh, they've risen from, uh, that we have uh, more women in the U.S. Senate, uh, that there are are maybe more women's studies uh, at university level. Uh, um, Is this moment in time any more important for women than a generation ago? Oh, that's a good question. Well, seeing more women in public life or in political office, certainly that's um, a a good sign, I think, if we're talking about equality and opportunity and maybe what women bring to the table in terms of ideas and issues or how much time should be focused on particular issues, uh, that's important. You know, I think back to a generation ago, um, you know, the 19, well, even more than a generation ago, Mm -hmm. if we go back 60s, 70s, 80s, the kind of life that was in second wave feminism and um, the changes that were being made, uh, legislation, lots of legislation to uh, provide equal opportunity to women in the United States. I, I won't speak for the world here, but for the United States, um, it, that was an exciting time. And those, those things that were achieved uh, in succeeding decades have been, some of them have been chipped away at. And so I think that what this generation, this new generation of women leaders or women in general, 
um, have to think about doing is kind of maintaining what uh, what was passed and uh, legislation that's passed, or maybe the way even that the culture has changed. It, it, this is a question that comes out, up a lot, I think, in universities um, about students who say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a feminist any, I'm not a feminist, I, I don't want to use that word because that's over, you know, it's done, everything's been accomplished. And of course we know that, um, that everything hasn't been accomplished uh, and that justice always has to be kind of fought for and uh, equality always has to be fought for. It's not like, oh, we've reached this great level and then uh, everything's taken care of. Uh, so I think this generation has to, has to kind of continue to build on and maintain some of the things that were achieved 40 years ago. Why do you think that uh, young woman would respond in that way, that she's not a feminist because that was something that happened many years ago? 50 years ago or 100 years ago. I don't know. I mean, it, that the word um, has has a lot of negative connotations. Um, certainly, there are pockets in the culture who pockets that that see uh, feminism as something that's been very damaging in the Western world, damaging globally, damaging in the United States. Um, so, I think that. Students who will deny that label may not understand what feminism is, or they see it as something that is uh, in the past and no longer needed. How did uh, Women's History Month get started? Women's History Month had its origins as a national celebration in 1981 when Congress passed a public law authorizing the president to proclaim a week in March as Women's History Week. And then throughout the next five years, Congress continued to pass joint resolutions designating a week in March as Women's History Week. But it was in 1987, um, after being petitioned by a group known as the Women's History Project, the National Women's History Project, that Congress um, passed a public law to designate the month of March as Women's History Month. And each year since then, the Congress has asked um, the president to proclaim March Women's History Month, and that's happened every year since 1987. And currently, this president has uh, designated this month as I History Month. I think so. We'll see today if he makes that announcement uh, in early March. So the, there are different themes that, that uh, someone adopts. Uh, the, the initiative uh, originally began, uh, and uh, the theme that I read about, uh, it's been said that the initiative should amplify women's voices to honor the past, inform the present, and inspire the future. So if you will, I'm going to ask you to sort of break down each of those uh, and talk a little bit about uh, that. And, and the first one, uh, and we touched on it with the, um, the young woman who responded to you uh, about feminism. What are we learning? What are we still learning from the past? And in your instruction, what, what do you 
what do you want students to know? Um, how important is it for them to know? And, and how far back do you go and begin to tell this story? Well, in United States history classes, uh, we go back kind of as far as the sources will take us. Uh, and that takes us back into, of course, uh, days of uh, when there were no Europeans on the continent, back into some Native American sources. It's very surprising to students, for example, to learn about the role of um, indigenous women in some of the tribes and the political roles that they had, some of the political powers that they used to check decision-making by men in those tribes, the Iroquois tribes, for example, uh, particularly strong women there. Um, and their role was to review decision-making by men in the tribe. So we start very early time-wise. And I think what my students are surprised by in the women's history class or in all classes, because I integrate women's history into all of the U.S. history classes, is that women were, were present and kind of urging various decisions, maybe not in public life, but certainly they had an influence um, in other ways, socially, culturally, um, we tend to think that various religious organizations kept women's voices suppressed, but you know, you'd be surprised at, um, I think, and certainly my students are surprised by some of the ways that women in religious denominations, religious organizations made themselves heard, made their influence known. Um, the word we use today is agency. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's, um, that's confidence building, I think, for students, especially female students, but for all students to see the wide range of participation by women in um, decision making and changing the cultures, um, whether it was in the 17th century or um, 18th century, 19th century. Um, if I can ask you sp uh, specifically, just in um, in terms of uh, the Civil War and and uh, uh, the, the leading male um, uh, characters and figures that came out of that. Uh, you, you occasionally uh, hear about uh, women who, who played prominent roles, but that's not something that, that normally um, is taught first. Uh, it's almost as if uh, the, the women who followed uh, or were advising in, um, uh, in, in closed uh, quarters uh, who, who are some of the, uh, whether in Kentucky or not, who are some of the, uh, I mean, you're the historian and, and I, I just read about this, but of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, wife was, was quite influential. I just did another podcast and, and, um, uh, about that period. And so talk a little a bit about uh, women in, in that era. Okay. Well, if you've just talked to someone about Mary Todd Lincoln, you know, of course, how politically savvy she was and what a great influence she was on um, her husband during the war. I think when we look particularly at women who volunteered during the Civil War, women who joined the Women's Sanitary Commission, there, there was really an opening for a lot of women who otherwise might have 
felt it necessary to to stay home, um, to contribute in some way using what was seen at the time as their maternal instincts to care for injured soldiers. And I think that the Women's Sanitary Commission opens a route for women then to be in, in um, professional life after the war is over. And one might say, well, it only dealt with nursing, but that it was huge. I mean, it was so important for medicine and for women to see that there was a place that they might not have to step outside gender expectations um, to, to care for um, and treat injured soldiers and do any number of other things that the Women's Sanitary Commission did. Uh, that was primarily in the United States, in the southern states, in the CSA. There were uh, more informal kinds of ways to uh, participate in public life during the war, but that was very influential in the northern states. Can you think of um, another um, national uh, incident that, that uh, created, uh, again, uh, light on women in... Um, of course, I, we could talk for hours on the uh, the movement to vote and the women's suffrage uh, um, era, but but uh, something along those lines from let's say uh, post Civil War or early uh, part of the century up to uh, uh, through World War One, um, we're doing a, a fast forward uh, 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 history lesson here, but. But what what uh, what do you teach your students about that era and and how active women were when at the time uh, they were on the front lines but but regular people might not have given them the credit that they that they deserved and that they get today. Well, the Progressive Era, which is roughly the 1880s up through World War One, um, gave us many activist women, um, and I think it's because so many women, of course, many of them middle-class women, many of them college-educated, um, were able to identify innumerable problems in the United States and then seek ways to, to try to deal with those problems, whether they were public health problems, uh, insufficient public schools, uh, there were a number of problems that progressive women were dealing with. Um, but your question leads me to think about the power of the temperance movement mm. in the late 19th century and uh, the relationship between women who were fighting for temperance and um, suffrage. And they really brought those two crusades, and they really were crusades. They brought those crusades together. And in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was the most powerful women's organization in the late 19th century, very much is a woman's suffrage organization. And they know if they can just gain for women the right to vote, then they, control, they can control the consumption of alcohol in the United States, which they see, of course, as causing so many problems, domestic and otherwise, if uh, alcohol can be controlled. And it's, you know, it's no uh, coincidence that we have the 18th Amendment to the Constitution and the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, you know, ratified so closely together. And those two largely due to 
the efforts of women mm -hmm. in the United States, those progressive women. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll leave the past and, um, <laughs> uh, and leave a lot out um, and, and go to the, um, the present and uh, back to the, the theme of informing the president, amplifying women's voices to inform the present. So I, I guess the, the, what does that really mean to you, amplifying the voices? Um, and, and what in today, in your classes as we speak, uh, what's important for not just the past, but what's important for men, young men and women uh, to, to learn and know about what's going on today? Well, I do think that the more that my students study the past, the more um, sophisticated, perhaps complex, they can see contemporary problems. And they can seek a variety of solutions to problems. Again, I'm making a case here for the study of history. I, mm. I do think if they know enough of the stories and the paths that um, women and others, but we're talking about women's history here, but the paths that women have taken to try to solve problems, see the variety of solutions proposed in the past, the, especially the way women work together in groups, in organizations, in clubs, um, across class lines, across race lines to, um, to reach their goals. I, th I think if they know those things, then they can meet today's challenges as well because they've, they've got some examples uh, and some tools and can learn from, from the past. So I don't, I th I don't I think know that's... if it, it struck you the way we, we, uh, we shared before we started the, the conversation about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the documentary RGB and the motion picture in the, on the basis of sex. And it didn't take long um, uh, for some of us um, uh, amateurs uh, and not historians to be jolted uh, back to uh, 1970 and 80 when men, um, uh, professors, uh, presidents of, uh, of Ivy League institutions would treat women in that way. And I'm sure that the students probably, the students today that you're, you're uh, teaching, mm -hmm. uh, uh, surely they were, they were surprised and shocked a, as well when you, when you realize someone of, uh, of her stature today w was treated like that um, not that many years ago. I think they are surprised. They, I will have to say, my students have been so impressed with both of those films, the documentary and uh, the feature film, and they are so impressed with Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm -hmm. as well. The Ivies were slow to come along to embrace women. There were other universities and colleges that were way ahead hmm. in terms of integrating women. So I would say when we look at the Ivies, they are uh, they are among the last to be welcoming hmm. to women. And, uh, and so that, I think, doesn't surprise my students um, as much as some other things that came out in both of those films. And, of course, my students are very interested 
in the relationship that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has with her husband and how supportive mm. he is of her work and, um, you know, what he does in, in terms of propelling her, you know, to a higher level. I'm thinking now about RBG and, um, and really getting her name out there. Now, she's driven. She's very driven, but she's got a partner who will help her and is not working against her in uh, that effort. So that's something my students are very interested in, the partnership that works um, early on, but also her drive, just her individual drive to, to work um, toward uh, eradicating any kind of barriers based on sex. Yeah, and I share this quote with our our listeners um, from uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception. So it would uh, you would uh, you would think that she would write something so eloquent and uh, and be able to state it. So again, uh, sticking with our theme and the third uh, about about the future, uh, inspiring the future. Um, so we talked about the past, amplifying the present, and inspiring uh, the future. So what, um, what, is, what is the role? How do you see uh, the progression of, of uh, and I hesitate to say the women's movement, uh, it's, it's, it's far beyond a movement today, uh, but the progression of women in, in all phases of life and how how that has to be enhanced and, and built on in the future. Do, do you agree? Well, I think it does have to be enhanced and built on. And as I said earlier, I think we, we have to always uh, be vigilant about justice and opportunity for all women. I think that uh, it's, it's easy to think, oh, we've accomplished things, let's rest. <laughs> you know, we can sit back and not think about uh, that law, that goal. Uh, we have to continue to do that. Um, to inspire the future, again, I'll, I'll return to the past. I think that um, if we keep digging out the narratives uh, in the past, if we keep telling the stories of women who worked against great odds in many fields, um, in many places, if we're talking about geography, um, you know, whether they're living in the country, the city, the east, the midwest, uh, the west, the, the American south, I think we can use those stories to inspire our activities in the future. Um, and, and I think that's particularly important if, if we get to a point where we're losing hope about social institutions or political institutions. Um, there were some pretty bleak times in the past, and people working together managed to overcome those. And I think those stories, again, if those stories motivate us to action, think and inspire us to see that there can be, you know, a, a bright may not be the right word to use, but I'm an optimist, and, and I think we can use those stories to see a brighter future for our children, grandchildren. And you are the uh, co-author of, um, of, of uh, and, and the author of several publications, uh, and, and certainly the co-author of 
uh, with uh, historian Thomas, uh, Thomas Appleton, who just happens to be our Kentucky Humanities Board Chair. And no one is going to know this but us. Um, we wouldn't reveal this at all. That just happens to be sitting about two feet from both of us. But he's taken a vow of silence. Um, he's just such a fan of yours uh, that he wanted to participate. So he's uh, he's being very quiet. Um, uh, the the book which he co-authored with you, Kentucky Women, Their Lives and Times. Just tell us a little bit about that. And 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 again, I know you're very uh, both of you are very very proud of that work, and and it was uh, very well received. Uh, why is it, uh, or should it be on everyone's uh, must read list? Um. Yes, we're glad Tom is here. He's here to correct me in case I make any <laughs> mistakes about the U.S. past or about Kentucky women. Tom and I had a great time working on this book. Kentucky Women, Their Lives and Times is a volume in the University of Georgia Press series, Southern Women, Their Lives and Times. This is a series. It has now closed, or the University of Georgia Press has, uh, has published all 19 volumes in the series, and this came out in 2015. We were, we were um, happy to work on this and look for scholars who could uh, write essays about Kentucky's amazing women. There are 17 essays in Kentucky Women, Their Lives and Times. Everyone should read it because it's highly readable. <laughs> it is, it, 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 we had uh, some great writers, uh, historians who wrote what are essentially biographical sketches of women. And um, each of the essays looks at one woman, maybe two or three women uh, who are connected in some way and uh, tells their story why it's a Kentucky story, why it's important to know, and um, also why it's a Southern story, because that's one of the questions that each writer had to answer. Uh, you know, what is this uh, story? What does it tell us about the South? What does it tell us about Kentucky, Kentucky's relationship to the South? And uh, the essays are varied. They cover a wide span of time, going back into... Uh, the 18th century up to the present. Uh, the essays cover the great geography of Kentucky from east to west, and it's a long drive if you've ever done that, even longer without a car, I'm sure for those who were on mm -hmm. horseback or on foot. And uh, it also covers a variety of professions, interests um, of women. And uh, so we really tried to to cover the waterfront, so to speak, in terms of time, geography, and interests of women. The, and I'll quote uh, Tom Appleton here, the usual suspects are there. Mm, he mm -hmm. often says the usual suspects mm -hmm. are there. So we have uh, essays on Madeline McDowell Breckenridge of Lexington and Mary Todd Lincoln of Lexington um, and some other uh, women who are well-known, but uh, lesser-known women as well that we thought would be important to have in the history of, of Kentucky. Well, just give us an idea about um, a couple of the lesser known uh, that, that we should know. And this is the reason, uh, of course, for the book. It's, it's fascinating to me as long as I continue to, to be a, a Kentuckian and be so proud of this Commonwealth that uh, there are discoveries uh, left and right. And I'll just uh, use this as sort of a uh, I haven't even shared this with Tom, but we just uh, 
uh, found out that uh, we, we hope to have Steve Luxenberg uh, at the Kentucky Book Festival this fall. And Luxenberg, I uh, just heard on a podcast from the New York Times and his, uh, his new uh, book, which um, you, Tom knows, you know, I didn't know, uh, the prominence of Justice Harlan uh, during that during that era, and I was just mesmerized by hearing Luxembourg talk about this. And of course, we have we have that character as as some of your women characters in in our Chautauqua uh, performers. And uh, to know that that uh, Justice Harlan was was a heartbeat away from so many of those key uh, factors uh, d- during that era is just uh, so exciting to. To learn, I mean, I just uh, get so some some of the lesser known characters that played key roles uh, that that you you would like to tell us about today. Well, one of the women that I hope is a Chautauqua character at some point. It's such a great program, the Chautauqua program, and has introduced Kentuckians to so many men and women uh, who need to be better known. One of the women in the book is Elizabeth Faust. A Lexingtonian. Um, actually, she was not born in Lexington, but she did a lot of her work, um, her club work in Lexington. And there's an essay in Kentucky Women by Karen McDaniel, a retired professor at Kentucky State University, about Elizabeth Faust. She was a school teacher. Uh, she and her husband moved to Lexington uh, when he took over the job as superintendent of the African-American school system in the early 20th century. Elizabeth Faust was born in 1875 and she died in 1952. And she was involved in so many initiatives, so many causes. She led uh, women's clubs, she was active in her church. She had a national role in the National Association of what was at the time known as Colored Women's Clubs. And um, the story that Karen McDaniel tells about Elizabeth Faust is a fascinating story. There was uh, a woman named Gertrude Boulder in Lexington who was a domestic worker. She worked in the house of a white family uh, downtown and she left work one day feeling ill And um, her employer asked, can we take you home? And she said, no, I think I'll walk home. And so she collapsed on a sidewalk downtown, um, Short Street, I believe. And the police picked her up, took her to jail, left her there um, in spite of her discomfort and illness, and she died in a jail cell. Well, um, Elizabeth... Faust and friends were fellow club women of Gertrude Boulder. Uh, They were outraged by the neglect of the Lexington police uh, who had not sought any kind of uh, care for Gertrude Boulder. And so just hours after Gertrude Boulder's funeral, Elizabeth Faust got together with other club women, church women, and they wrote petitions. They wrote a petition, which they presented to the mayor of Lexington, to the superintendent of public safety, um, and to law enforcement, other law enforcement officials, 
basic, basically asking for redress and um, some kind of public recognition of one of Gertrude Boulder's character because they felt like she had been uh, not treated as a respectable woman, should be treated. Also, they were asking that the police department, the jailers, that the city of Lexington uh, examine its policy toward prisoners, people who are incarcerated, if people were ill, to, to not leave them to die in jail cells. It, so it very, very much uh, uh, these petitions uh, got, got the city of Lexington, the mayor, the police department in 1925, to alter the way they dealt with prisoners um, and uh, those who are incarcerated. And uh, so that's, that's just one of Elizabeth Faust's many victories as an activist um, woman. Uh, g- give us a, um, a, a portrait of, of one other, please. Oh, let's see. Um, well, Louisvillians probably know Enid Yandel, the sculptor, uh, more so than the rest of us in Kentucky. There's a full-length biography that's going to come out of, uh, about Enid Yandel uh, in the next two or three years. The, the question of wem- women and sculpture is on my mind right now. There's right now a, uh, oh, I should remember the initiative. It is, I think, Break the Bron- Bronze Ceiling or hmm. Break the Bronze Ceiling. It's about mm-hmm. how few how few sculptures there are of women in the United States. Um, and so there's a, there is a, a debate about this. And in Kentucky, uh, in particular, the idea is to get a, a statue of a woman in, in Frankfurt, in the state capital. Mm-hmm. So I digress, but I'm talking yeah. about... Important, I, because talk, there's not one. There's not one. Yeah. There's not. But the Break the Bronze Ceiling initiative mm-hmm. is designed to get more sculptures of women mm-hmm. uh, in in our public spaces. And Enid Yandel, Enid Yandel, a Louisvillian, um, was born in 1869. She died in 1934. She was um, the first woman inducted into the National Sculpture Society in 1899. She trained with some of the great uh, sculptors in the United States and in Paris. She early on uh, was successful. She was tapped to be one of the sculptors at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. She moved up there. She designed uh, this great sculpture of Daniel Boone to uh, represent the state of Kentucky. And from from that point, and she was quite a young woman at that point, um, she, she would go on to do other large-scale sculptures for world's fairs in various cities. She uh, did a huge sculpture for the Tennessee Centennial uh, in 1897, I think, and, um, and so really made a name for herself as an artist, as a sculptor of large-scale designs, and, uh, and represents... Um, women breaking into the world of sculpture, which was was a male world in the late 19th century. And she goes on to found an art school and, and trains many young artists in Massachusetts. So she's a Kentuckian that we're, we're proud of, her artistry, her philanthropy. She was also active during World War I um, and an activist. So. 
Dr. Melissa McEwen, thanks so much for celebrating Women's History Month with us on Think Humanities podcast. Thank you, Bill, for having me here. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.